This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the Jacqueline Ades case? In this case, we really don't have any type of background, so I'll start with the timeline of the alleged crimes, and then I'll move to my analysis. This case takes place in Arizona. At the center of it is a makeup artist named Jacqueline Ades. She was in her early 30s, and she would later say she was on a road trip from Miami, Florida, looking for love. My understanding, though, is at the time of the incident, she did live in Phoenix, Arizona. In 2017, Jacqueline used a multimillionaire matchmaking app to arrange a date with a CEO who lived in Paradise Valley. The date ended in sex, but the man did not want to continue the relationship. Jacqueline started sending texts to this businessman. Over the course of about 10 months, she allegedly sent 159,000 text messages. At first, the messages didn't seem to be particularly unusual. She wrote things like, you have to be nice to me and I love you. But then the tenor changed and a number of threats were evident. Just a few examples. She told him that she would make sushi out of his kidneys, use his bones for chopsticks, and wear his flesh like a suit. It strikes me that all three of these seem to be about utility. She was going to get the most out of his body. It's almost like a stalker who appreciates recycling. It's one thing to stalk, but being wasteful is where she draws the line. As if those messages really didn't convey her point, she made it even more clear by saying that she would kill him if he ever tried to leave her. I'm not sure that message was necessary, given the whole bones for chopsticks part and other remarks Maybe she was concerned that he would think that she was just going to borrow those parts and was going to give them back later. This is like a looter running out of a store with a 52-inch television and saying to a bewildered clerk, just so you understand, I'm not bringing this back. In addition, she allegedly showed up at his house on one occasion. She was escorted off the property. On another occasion, when the man was out of the country, she allegedly made entry into his house and took a bath in his bathtub. She had a few things with her, a bottle of wine, food, and her two dogs. She also had an 8-inch butcher knife on the passenger seat of her car. She was arrested and charged with trespassing and stalking. She was released, but she failed to appear at her next court date. After this, she showed up at his work pretending to be his wife. She was arrested again and not offered any type of bail. She had a chance right away to take a plea deal, that would have allowed her to be released from prison, but a condition of that deal was not to contact the man. She did not think the deal was real, and she thought the man was testing her resolve with that offer. She was found mentally incompetent to stand trial. A judge delayed her trial in order to give mental health professionals an opportunity to restore her to competency. Later, the charges would be dropped because Jacqueline was declared non-restorable. The last update I found with this case was that she was being transferred from prison to a behavioral health facility. She was supposed to stay there for a couple weeks, 
and her parents were going to take her back to Florida where she would continue mental health treatment. During the time she was incarcerated, we see a number of unusual statements. Some were given during an interview with the press at the jail. She also wrote a number of unusual items on her Instagram page. Here are a few of the things that she said or wrote. The threatening messages were a joke. She loved the victim. She would never hurt him. He was her soulmate. She believed that the jury would not only find her not guilty, but they would also demand that she and the man get married. So I guess this is something like, we the jury find the defendant not guilty, but we find the defendant guilty of being in true love. I don't know how that's supposed to work. I've never heard of a jury ordering people to get married. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. In trying to explain her behavior, she indicated that she had an argument with her mother and took her anger out on the victim. She said, if I had a perverted imagination, what would I think? She went on to say, and then I wrote all these weird things. I was literally playing with my imagination, and it turned out that that scared him. She said that when she was released from jail, she would go to Florida and would not contact the man because she believed he would contact her first. She stated, I just think it's ridiculous. I can't believe that it turned into this. I can't believe that I'm actually in jail over some text messages. That's like saying the solid rocket boosters for the space shuttle generated some horsepower. She claimed that she had been abducted on a prior occasion by Walt Disney. She believed that Disney flew a spaceship and was a member of the Illuminati. She appeared to have a fixation on several numbers. 33 really stood out, but she also mentioned 3 and 0. Love seemed to be a theme in some of her statements as well. She was looking for a healing angel. She felt that love was an excessive thing. She needed to share the message of love, and she was the person who discovered love. She believed that Adolf Hitler was a genius, She knew the location to Atlantis, and she said that money was created to stifle 
the imagination. So I guess this means she didn't have money because she did appear to have a lot of imagination. I'm not sure what she meant here. So what could be going on in a situation like this? There was no report in the media about any specific diagnosis, and only a professional who evaluates her in person could say anything on that topic with any certainty. There are many possibilities. It could be nothing is going on. She could simply have unusual beliefs. It could be something related to psychosis, like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, or bipolar disorder. There's really no way to know. We don't know what her behavior was like before this. Did she always act like this, or is this something new, or substances involved? She seems to be fairly industrious. It's a lot of work to send 159,000 messages over 10 months. To put it in perspective, this is as many messages as the average user in her age range sends and receives in six years. All we really have in this case, as far as mental health, is the court saying that there was some type of mental health issue which warranted her not going to trial and having the charges dismissed. Presumably, that means that somebody in the court system believed mental health care was required and the symptoms were serious enough that they impaired her ability to aid in her own defense. With this in mind, I think what concerns me with this case is the whole jailhouse interview part. I think those reporters knew that something out of the ordinary was going on with Jacqueline, and she needed to be evaluated and treated by mental health professionals, yet she was permitted to give this interview to the press, and they just kept going at her for about 18 minutes, as if they were trying to make sense of something they knew did not make sense. They were pointing out her symptoms. She did not appear to be in distress, but I wonder how it will affect her in the future. Like if she tries to get a job and a potential employer sees that interview, they're probably not going to be too enthusiastic about hiring her. I don't know how this interview came about or why it was allowed. Perhaps her attorney permitted it to demonstrate Jacqueline's condition. Maybe Jacqueline wanted to do it. There's no information available about that. I'm also curious about why the victim wouldn't simply block Jacqueline's number after a few text messages. Are we to believe that someone who's extremely wealthy can't figure out how to use the block feature on his phone or hire someone who can do it for him? There's also no mention of her breaking into his house. She was charged with criminal trespassing, not burglary, which tells me that either he left his doors unlocked, which seems unusual for what I imagine was some type of mansion, or she had a key. This makes me wonder if she did not have permission at one time to go onto his property, and it was a matter of that permission being revoked, as opposed to her actually breaking in to the house. If that's the case, did they really have just that one date, or something closer to the three dates that Jacqueline indicated in that jailhouse interview. I think this case highlights the importance of proper mental health care in the criminal justice system. No matter what actually happened in this case, I hope that Jacqueline gets the care that she may require. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Allegedly is back for season two, a new crime every time. In each episode of Allegedly, you'll hear a crime told to you by the person who experienced it, intermingled with actor portrayals, original music, immersive soundscapes, to create a cinematic experience for your ear. Season two's stories include 
a young woman finding salvation in God, only to realize the leader of her church was running a sex cult. A case of a con artist swindling a kindly older man until he couldn't do anything to stop her. A landlord exploiting a mentally disabled man and keeping him a virtual prisoner. An act of bullying spinning a promising young man's life into total chaos. And a luxury boat captain inexplicably detained in a foreign prison with seemingly no hope of ever getting out. New episodes release every other week. Look for Allegedly from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.